Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Strife's Sanctum. My name is Citizen Strife, and this week we will conclude our episodes on Ruby. We've done volumes one through five, and at last we recorded the members of Team Ruby and, well, Junior, not longer, no longer Juniper, were able to thwart Salem's plans at Haven to a certain extent. But now they were going to Atlas, and they were going to meet their own problems. So Volume 6 is about getting to Atlas, and then Volume 7 and 8 are about what happens when you get there. So Volume 6 doesn't have a lot in the way of new characters, but what it does do is open up a lot more plot. We'll start with the characters because they're short amounts. We'll get to where they can. Uh, Maria Calavera, known as the Grim Reaper. Uh, an old lady they meet on a train to Atlas. Her semblance is called Prefexes. And the idea with her is that she's able to just know things and see things before they happen. And it's spider sense, pretty much. And react to them and deal with them, despite her old age. And she has a staff and, you know, shorthand weapons that she can use to deal with that. And she's also aware of what the silver eyes are. And we'll go over that in a minute, as far as plot details. Um, but again, she joins the party right at the beginning of the series, at least of this volume. And her annoyance is with a uh, character later on, uh, Caroline Cordova voiced by Mela Lee, who was in a few um, anime that I know, mostly Rose and Maiden and such, but she's mostly remembered for being the original Fuka of Persona, Persona 3. Um, and her character in this is she's basically the commanding officer of the city of Argus. So not quite Atlas, but about as close as you can get to Atlas and basically being a border town between Haven and Atlas. So, yes, she's very important, and she knows who Maria is and won't let everybody in, and there's a reason why, and it's a problem. We'll get into the third character in a minute, but we'll start with the plot. As I said before, uh, Volume 6 is where things really start to change again. We've found out who Salem is, but we don't know what she wants, and yet that is where it starts. Um, after a grim attack on a train to Argus, the party ends up basically marooned in the middle of the blizzard, and Ozpin is acting a little strange, and he's hiding something, and the relic of knowledge apparently is what they're after. The thing they found at Haven he knows what's in it, and he knows what's going on, and then the party has to figure out what's going on, so she asks, or Ruby asks the lamp what's going on, and inside the lamp is a character known as Jin, voiced by Colleen Clinkenbeard, who was uh, Riza Hawkeye from Fullmetal Alchemist, um, well-known voice actress for Funimation. We see that all the time lately, but yes. Um, so Jin's whole idea is... She can answer three questions every 100 years, and Ruby's question, what is Ozpin hiding? And what he's hiding is Salem's origin story. 
Because Ozpin was originally a person known as Ozma, who, think of it like a Rapunzel story. Like, trying to take Rapunzel out of a tower, he fought his way through a tower and got her hand. And they ran off together, Salem and Ozma. But he fell ill, and she decided, well, I can't handle this. What do I do? She goes to the God of Light and says the world runs on a cycle and can't break that cycle just because you're selfish. So she gets turned out. The God of Darkness, being a little bit more willing, says, okay, I will give him to you. And then the gods of light and dark fight amongst each other, and Salem's not too happy about it. While they were bickering, they decided, okay, if this is what you really believe, then this isn't going to work. But we will teach you the error of your ways by making you immortal. So she's left immortal in a world without her beloved, and she tries to take it out on them and pretty much runs a coup and decides, I'm going to kill you somehow. And then they find her and say, if this is what you're going to do, then not only are you immortal, but you're the only human left alive. And since we can't leave you to your own devices, we'll just leave the planet by itself and never return. And that is what caused Remnant's moon to basically run into pieces. Salem, being left alone, decides to cast herself into the god of darkness's murky bog of shit and turns into Salem herself. Capable of controlling Grimm and immortal and vengeful and all this stuff, Ozma gets reincarnated by the god of light and says, the only reason you can survive is because we let you, but you will reincarnate because we've made a mistake and we've left Salem alive, and we don't believe that's a good idea. But we've left relics for you to find. Creation, choice, destruction, and knowledge. And if you find them and bring them together, we will bring the world back to the way it was. But if she does it, and you find out that the world hasn't been left in shambles... Then we will decide that humanity is forfeit and destroy it. So, Salem's old game is to try and end her existence by ruining everyone else and then finding the relics. Ozma knows this, still ends up finding her, and then they fall for each other for a brief time, unfortunately. But when they find out that this is where it's all leading to, they come to blows, and that's where we've been left. And Ozma has done his best to create the academies and bring people together, and unfortunately for him, decided to leave a lot of that whole Salem is immortal business out of the public knowledge. So, he had a lot of explaining to do and ran away. And Ruby and her group are now basically just shell-shocked. And heading to Atlas under duress and having to deal with that and going to a place where they're basically left alone. So they're questioning themselves in the midst of a city with the deal of apathy. And they happen upon, excuse me, they happen upon a farm which has no living beings left. It turns out that a series of Grimm were stuck in a well to try and curb the emotional problems, and then it ended up killing the emotion outright and then killing their will to live. So they had to escape. And they escaped it 
because Ruby had silver eyes and Maria was able to tell her about that skill. Not much is known except for the fact that if you can tap into this skill, you can basically imbue yourself with the God of Light's willpower and destroy the Grim. So, Ruby's able to at least command it on several occasions going forward, rather than just doing it at the end of Volume 3 and Volume 5. Um, alongside with that, Cinder is still alive, and she happens upon somebody in, in the town of Mistral. Neo! Neo is returned and is back, and um, not happy. But she's not happy at either Cinder or Ruby, but then she finds out that, well, Cinder is the Fall Maiden and can kick the shit out of her. So they decide, hey, we'll join up and do stupid shit and get the relics back. So, Neo is back. Yay! Cinder's back. Boo! But they're doing their thing. Salem's forces are doing theirs and prepping for Atlas. The city of Argus doesn't want Ruby's party to go to Atlas, even though Ironwood knows nothing about it. So that's where the whole Maria versus Cordovan problem happens. And Cordovan holds this giant fucking mech that can destroy the Grim, but Ruby and whatever don't know that, and they blow the shit out of it, and then they decide, hey, oh shit, it's a giant Grim, what do we do? And then they have to fight it off. All the while, Adam Taurus is back. And Yang and Blake have to team up and fight Adam. And by doing so, they manage to kill him. And thankfully for all involved, they were able to manage to do so. So there's a lot going on. The journey to Atlas is a lot of crazy things going on. And what I really like about Volume 6 is you realize the penultimate stakes. You realize that Cinder is not the big bad. Of course, Salem is, and now you know why. Now you know why Ozpin was such a big focal point in this. You know why the relics were such a big focal point in this. And everything is starting to make sense. Um, the crazy cool things about um, all of Ruby's party having to deal with the cold and dealing with the apathy. Those are pretty cool issues. The one thing I won't say much about Volume 6 is that under the opening theme, I've, I've said I like a lot of them. This is one I'm kind of iffy on just because it's not really all that great. It's known as Rising. It's fine, I suppose, but it doesn't really... It's, it's more of them rising against the issues that they deal with, but I don't really think it says much like the other ones do. Um, I think other volume intros are way stronger and way more impressive i find it to be the weakest one um but that's just my personal opinion but volume six sets the stage for volume five and vol or volume seven excuse me <laughs> volume seven is where they finally make it to atlas and this is where you know crow um has overcome most of his issues but hasn't you know, he overcame a lot of, like, his drunkenness in Six. Um, and Ruby finally stood up to him and said, Hey, get your shit together or we'll leave without you, but we could really help, we could really use your help. So in Volume 7, his focus tends to be more on 
basically becoming friends with people again or realizing how he can be friends again. Because Volume 7 is all about trust. If Volume 6 was about despair and hope, then Volume 7 is about trust. Emblematic of the song Trust in Love. And that's where a lot of characters get introduced and reintroduced. Um, as I said with Crow, he has to undergo a change and he underwent a change of voice actor. Uh, I said before in volume, volume three that Vic Mignano did his voice up to six and then had to be changed out because of his uh, legal, tri uh, legal troubles and blacklisting. So they got Jason Liebrecht and rewatching uh, Liebrecht's performance, he doesn't have the range. He doesn't have, like, the the slimy, slovenly, like, goofball aura that Vic's interpretation did. Um, Liebrecht did a good job of centering the character on being this guilt-driven, not a, not a psychopath, but very guilt trip. That's what I would consider his his focal point was he is good at getting across he is a battered beaten guy who doesn't really have much confidence in himself and that's what i think Liebrecht does better and you don't have the whole drunken sloviness at issue you have the mistrust angle and again the trust is earned and you have to deal with that and in volume seven you have a lot of new characters but you have a lot of old ones coming back you have general ironwood and Winter Schnee coming back, but you also have the reinduction of Penny. And Penny was repaired at the end of Volume 3, and she comes back, and like Volume 7 and Volume 8 are all about Ironwood, Winter, and Penny. I mean, they have a lot of new characters they gotta get through, but they are the main three uh, protagonists that they focus on. Um, you also get the Atlas Ace Ops, or Ace Operatives, several special Atlas personnel who are basically at Iron One's beck and call. Um, opposing them are Robin Hill's Happy Huntresses. On You have this like top world known as Atlas and this bottom world known as Mantle. Think of it like Midgar from Final Fantasy VII. The top plate is for the... The upper crust and the bottom plate is for the slum dwellers and the shit. So the people on Atlas have the money and have the prestige and the, the heat and whatever. And Mantle is just fending for itself. And Ironwood has to deal with um, a lot of pushback from Atlas and Mantle on all sides. From, Robert, uh, from Robin and Jacques Snee, who's still snickering and sniveling his way around trying to get... Um, onto the public council and trying to stop Ironwood from basically having that embargo, which was way back in, fuck, all the way back in volume four. Um, still going on. But alongside that, you have all this crazy stuff with uh, Tyrion Callows and Arthur Watts from Salem's group infiltrating Atlas. You've got Cinder and Neo puttering around on their own too. So they're dealing with their own issues You've got R Ruby's group and Ironwood's group all tr coalescing. And then you have the Winter Maiden, and that is where Winter Story kind of coalesces. So seven is a lot of stuff. Like six and seven and eight, 
there's way more stuff going on in these three volumes than I think anything in either of volume four or five. And even volume three didn't have this much going on. There is a lot, and it's very dense, but it is very, very good stuff, and they take their time with it. Um, the last three or four volumes have been very good about giving everything time to breathe. And if you need to focus on one group, you'll focus on one group. And then you take it, you take a, another group and you give them a few minutes and then you give another, but then you start weaving the narratives towards the end of the season to these big punch up things. And that's really what starts happening is all this stuff is starting to just coalesce and be building towards we need to protect the relic. How do we protect the relic? And then Ironwood has a plan, and Ruby has a plan, and Winter has a plan, and Penny has a plan. Everybody has a plan. And then Cinder and Neo and Tyrion and whatever, and Salem all just say, fuck your plan. <laughs> and it becomes an issue of trust. And like I said, there are a lot of characters to get through, so bear with it. Um, like I said, we have all of the main players from all of the other volumes that are still alive pretty much but as far as the main good guys for right now we have and, and it, a lot of it is good people a lot of the main bad guys are still the same as they've always been you know the neos the cinder salem we introduced them before but you get a lot of people on the on the uh protagonist side uh first and foremost is pietro paul and dina uh, David Fenoy, he is the creator of Penny, and his semblance, which doesn't even get revealed until Volume 8, he's very particular about keeping Penny alive because he can only create her and her soul by giving her some of his. So he finds that Penny's survival kind of hinges on his own life force, and he doesn't have much left. Because he's an old guy and he's an old researcher and, you know, he's trying to do the best he can. For the Aesops, you've got Clover Ebby, uh, Christopher Wakehamp. His semblance is good luck. And of all the weapons you could think of, he has a fishing pole. He has a fishing pole staff. I can't believe it, but it's really freaking cool. It actually is really intricate uh, how he uses it. And again, his semblance is good luck and he actually gets a... Um, measure of closeness with crow because crow has bad luck so they start to bond and they start to work together you've got harriet brie uh inaris quinoas he's uh much like ruby she's kind of a mix of ruby's semblance and yang's fisties um fisties whatever um so she's got super speed but she uses her fists so she runs around punching things makes sense uh, see, Elm Ederni. I'm trying to. I'm trying to read it here. Uh, Dawn Bennett. Her semblance is interesting. It's called Aura Roots. What it amounts to is she's just a big, stocky lady. She's got a hammer. She's got a rocket launcher. But she can set herself into the ground, and like basically become a battering ram or a stopgap, and just set herself up, and then just baseball bat something with her hammer or if somebody tries to run into her like a fucking train she'll just stop her with all her momentum she just won't get stuck and on that same on that same vein you have uh vine zeki 
voiced by Todd Womack. His semblance is fairly similar, but his is mostly the hands. And so his hands kind of extend out and can kind of like grasp things and hold on to things. So if she can hold on to the ground, he can hold on to whatever. So he's got like stretch arm strong arms and stuff. And that's kind of what he uses as his weapon. Uh, he doesn't really use much else. Or if they do, it's not really a focus because he can just kind of like trap people in his arms and fuck around with things and mess around with things while in, in battle. And then there's uh, Meryl Amin, uh, Mick Lauer, uh, voiced or voiced by Mick Lauer, his semblance is freezing people, and not freezing like like Weiss or Winter does, but freeze as in stopping them, just stop. And he can stop up to maybe two or three people before it just starts to become a problem for him. But he's able to just stop them for a second, and that's just enough to change the tide of battle or whatever he's trying to do. And he's got a rifle and a boomerang, so you got all five of them as the Aesops kind of fucking around as Ironwood's personal guard. And there's this thing where Ruby and Ironwood are kind of like trying to see eye to eye, but they don't. And Oscar's also like, cause he knows who Ospin is. He has Ospin's knowledge base and he wants to tell Ironwood the things. And it's just like the Aesops are trying to follow what Ironwood is saying, but they're also their own people. But Ruby and her party can't really get where they're coming from. So, it, it, again, it's a lot of trust issues. And then you add on the fact that it's not just the, the Aesops you have the problems with. You have Robin Hill and her group. And uh, Robin Hill is voiced by Christina V, who I remember very fondly as Velvet Crow from Tales of Berseria and Darkness from Konosuba. So, God willing, I love knowing that that's a thing. Anyway, but... I'm glad that she's a character in this show. I'm glad that she's a very major character in the show. And, you know, again, does a very good job voicing the character. Uh, her semblance is essentially the D&D Zone of Truth. Um, anyone who's familiar with Zone of Truth, it's the idea where you're just like a big fucking tube of light. And you step in this tube of light or you're this room of Zone of Truth and you cannot tell a lie. Or you have like a role against telling a lie. And the way it works with her is she has to grab your hand. Mostly just to, you know, she's not forcing it, but she's trying to be diplomatic about it. And she knows that you will, like, have to tell the truth or can sense the truth from it. And she, you know, uses her weapon, which is a crossbow and kind of a ring blade of, like, several blades all in a, all in a circle and she's a decent fighter in and of herself, so she can hang with people like Crow against Tyrion. So, you know, she's not somebody to be fucked with. She's got several uh, subordinates. Uh, Fiona Time is voiced by Michelle Masontag. Her semblance isn't shown a lot, but it's uh, known as Pocket Dimension. So they do a thing where they're trying to steal some stuff for Atlas to bring it back to Mantle, because Mantle is dealing with a lot of... Um, uh, dust shortages and shit and Fiona's able to take um a atlas truck and put it in a pocket dimension and just hold it at bay and steal it basically so she uses crossbow and staff all of the members of the happy huntresses use the same thing um Joanna Greenleaf is voiced by Marissa Lenti she's not really shown to have a semblance 
she's just there to, you know, be a big burly subordinate. She's there to basically just tell people, dude, we just got to keep moving. We got to keep moving. We just got to do things the right way. And she acts as security. And alongside Mary, May Marigold, uh, Kin Jensen, I don't know how you spell that or pronounce it, but her semblance is more shown off in Volume 8. And she's who I would consider kind of the main person aside from Fiona other than Robin, as she can turn everything invisible. And she is a lot like Joanna, but even more forceful. She takes the brunt of Ruby's, like, bullshit, you know, Team Ruby's bullshit, and kind of has to tell them that Mantle is in dire straits. And if you don't fix it, then it's your own damn fault. And we're doing what we can to help the lesser fortunate. So Robin has to deal with Jacques being Jacques, Schnee, you know, this dickhead. And Ironwood basically cutting off all of everything to everywhere. For good reason. He wants his forces there in case Salem shows up. And what happens when things hit the fan? Well, Cinder shows up. Neo shows up. And you're not prepared because guess who Guess who wasn't prepared for it? Nobody was prepared. Neo shows up. Uh, Ren comes after him only to have her disguise herself as Nora and he doesn't want to hit her because he has, she has Nora's face and she just runs off. She steals the relic and gives it to Cinder, Tyrion and whatever fight off Clover and Crow and Robin and Tyrion kills Clover with Crow's own sword. And then Crow gets arrested for it. And then Ironwood is in left in shambles. And all the while, Winter is dealing with her family issues, and she tells Weiss, hey, I'm going to be the Winter Maiden because I chose to. But because Cinder and Neo attacked, Cinder was looking to become the Winter Maiden, but Winter was attacked, and then Penny got the power instead. So that set the stage for Volume 7 and Volume 8. And if Volume 7... Excuse me. If Volume 7 was about... Losing trust. Then volume 8. Was about the consequences of not having enough. And going to war about it. And as I said before. Volume 7 was all about. Trust. The intro sequence was all about. Introducing all these new characters. And what their motivations were. And there's so much going on. With volume 7 that I like. I said before that the character models and CGs changed in Volume 4. They changed again in Volume 7 to be even more up-to-date. They changed everybody's outfits a third time. Uh, Jean still keeps his outfit, but he shortened his hairstyle. Um, you know, so everybody gets a new outfit. Penny looks different. Winter looks different. Ironwood looks way different. He's grown himself a goddamn beard. He's looking very disheveled, and he's coming across as this guy who's kind of losing himself. Um, I just love the fact that Ironwood and Winter and Penny, specifically Winter and Penny, have been reintroduced. So, Volume 7 is about setting the stage of things, much like Volume 4 was, and reintroducing characters and giving them where what side do they feel on? Where do they where do they go? Where do they fall? And again, this this 
crazy like neo infiltration where she fights off basically all three members of Jean, Nora, and Ren just by disguising herself half the time and then running the fuck away. Uh, she steals the relic of knowledge from Oscar and then Ren tries to stop her, fights Nora, as I said before. But I thought she could be noticed by her eye color, like her her uh, pink eye. Like you could tell like her eye was pink and the other one was brown and you could tell somehow some way she was able to just transform and look exactly like Nora and that split second was enough for Ren to just go I don't want to fucking do it and then she just beats the shit out of him and legs it and she just used that split second diversion to basically make him crack and it was great so at the end of all of this, Cinder's got the relic. Penny's the new uh, Winter Maiden. I was about to say Iron Maiden. That'd be pretty fucking sweet. Um, and it would work, too. Um, but um, but Cinder's pissed that she's not the Winter Maiden, but she takes the relic, and, you know, Neo did all the fucking work. But um, anyway, that's whatever. But Salem is there, and Salem is ready to kick ass. And, oh boy, is this not a good shape. Because you have everybody in their own problems. With everybody dealing with all their shit, Volume 8 starts with the Grimm basically destroying Mantle, and the intro sequence is much like Volume 3's was, where Beacon was in shambles, and now Mantle is in shambles, and the entire like intro sequence is just this heavy, dark, really painful. Just, it's driving like all the other songs are, but in a mean, mean-spirited way. It's called the uh, For Every Life, and it just encapsulates how Salem has everything at her beck and call, and there's not much anyone can do. Um, Salem is destroying everything and is ready to just show up at Atlas. So... The party wants to save Mantle, but Ironwood doesn't want to, so he tries to threaten everybody and tries to sick the remaining members of the Aesops against Team Ruby, for better or for worse. Um, Crow and Robin are captured alongside Watts and Jacques Schnee, and, you know, Arthur gets to work with Ironwood to stop Penny because he just needs Penny to open the fucking vault or to keep it from opening. You know, but at the same time, he also has a plan to use what's in the vault. So Ironwood wants Arthur to open the vault to use it to stop Salem. Obviously, Arthur's trying to use it for his own purposes to get Salem back. Um, but what's also at the side of things is uh, an episode where Cinder and her past catches up with her. And... This is the one thing that I think I like, but I don't like. And I'll go into another uh, negative. I don't have a lot of negatives about the show, to be honest. And I get the understanding of wanting to give Cinder a backstory, because they haven't really gone into that. And I don't know if they meant for Cinder to be sympathetic, because there's no goddamn way you can be. I like the fact that Cinder is told as this tragic like I was a slave girl and I fought my way out of it and I've learned to not trust anybody and I want everything and I need everything that's great but Salem exists 
when you have Salem and you've spent volume six basically saying Salem is impossible to be killed, there's not a whole lot you can do. And Cinder being this conniving, manipulative bitch who's looking for the Winter Maiden power, she's riding in Salem's coattails. And whether that works or it doesn't work is still up for interpretation and debate because the story hasn't played itself out yet. But everything Cinder does is just going to be a microcosm of what Salem would want her to do anyway whether Cinder is doing it for her own uses or not. So if they pull some bullshit where Cinder switches sides at the end of it or she dies some heroic death or something, it's gonna ring hollow because of everything she's done. And that's including what she does in Volume 8. Now, I don't think that's what they were going for, no. I think it's very apparent that there's no going back for Cinder regardless and introducing her final you know her initial motivations make sense because it rounds her character out a little bit but again she's still second fiddle to Salem so there's only so much you can do with her that doesn't kind of revolve around her or Ruby basically beating the shit out of them until one of them probably Cinder dies so the whatever but that's the one thing. Um, Oscar, Oscar gets kidnapped. Um, Salem wants to learn the, the relic of knowledge. He ends up telling Hazel the story himself. And then Hazel actually helps Emerald and Oscar escape at the cost of his own life. Um, there's a situation where, and this is another weird thing and I'll, I'll try to coalesce all of this into the into the big finale here um the staff of creation penny is very fo focused on in this in this season and for better or for worse and she was focused on in season seven and and arthur is tasked with helping get Penny to open the vault, but what he doesn't know is that he implanted a virus in Penny and she's gonna do whatever. So, like, there was this other plan to basically contact the world with Amity Tower, and Penny was gonna help save it. And that doesn't happen, and weird shenanigans happen, and she gets infected with a virus. So we, we stop there. See, we get to the Staff of Creation after that because we find out that Emerald is able to stop, you know, she is able to kind of work her way onto Ruby's team. They don't trust Emerald, why would they? But Emerald has that power of hallucinations where she can basically make things appear how she wants or inhabit the body of whoever she wants or make people believe that she looks a certain way. So... They end up coming with a plan. So Ruby, at this point, is against Ironwood and against his plan to basically shunt all of Atlas to the sky and leave Mantle to fucking die. But to do that, they need to open the vault. So Penny has to go there regardless. Arthur's made it, so if Penny goes, she dies. Not the greatest of situations, and Ironwood and the ace operatives are trying to find them and do all that stuff. 
What they don't account for is that Winter has also decided not to go with them, and Marrow has decided, hey, I'm going against the Aesops too. So several of the Aesops and Ironwood are now against a lot of different people. And Crow and Robin are trying to escape on their own as well. So lots of different things happen, and while the staff is in stasis, they open the vault with the idea that they're going to try and save Mantle and Atlas's population and stop Salem at the same time. It's very tricky, but the staff is able to pull that off to a certain extent. The, what the staff can do is inside the staff is a spirit, much like Jin was. The staff embodies a spirit known as Ambrosius. He's voiced by Valentine Stokes, and he just comes off as this, like, very big, very, like, artist madden. He's just, a, he looks like the genie, but he's just, I'm an artist, and show me my artistry, and do what I can do. And he gives you these specific things where he will only do if you have the exact plans to do it. And if you're very absolutely specific, he will do a specific thing. And he will do nothing except those. So you have to be very cautious with what you say. So their plan is twofold. To take Penny's body that was robotic and has this virus and turn it into a human. So she turns into a human. Somehow. But she still has the maiden powers. Okay, we'll go with that, I guess. She's She dodged death with the Amity thing because she was holding it up in the air and then plummeted to the ground, and it's fine. So she has a virus, and she then turns into a human, I guess. It's fine. I mean, it's cool. I mean, it doesn't change her semblance or anything. It doesn't change her personality, I guess. They made a whole big deal out of... It's, it's fine. But the plan with the staff is to create these portals from Atlas and Mantle to Vacuo. But they coalesce in this extra-dimensional space, and everyone, barring Ironwood and Winter, who are fighting amongst each other, and several others like Arthur and Jacques and whomever, deal with their these portals. And as things are going on, Winter is fighting Ironwood. Because Ironwood was captured during the coup, escaped, and blew the shit out of Jacques for his own shits and giggles. So Jacques Schnee is dead. Big fucking whoop. Ironwood still thinks he can use the staff and raise Atlas high above, and Winter stops him. But not without some hitches. You see, while the, the evacuation is going on, these giant... Extra-dimensional space. It's interdimensional or extra-dimensional. One of the two. It's this big void space that's like a big gold freeway. These like 10 or 20 different paths that are opening up to these portals to vacuo. And people are starting to make their way through. Certain members of the group are starting to make their way through. Unfortunately, Cinder and Neo make their way through as well. And they fight off Team Ruby. And Neo is going to fight off Team Ruby and manages to do so to an extent. So Yang is thrown off. Blake is thrown off. Weiss is thrown off. Uh, 
and Ruby is thrown off, and Neo is hanging there, and unfortunately, she thinks Cinder is going to save her. No. <laughs> so she just steals both relics for Salem, and then basically just leaves Neo to fall off the cliff, and never to be seen again, apparently. Winter had made it through, but not in time for what Neo and Cinder did before they actually fought off Team Ruby. Because I talked before about Penny, and I'll talk about it now. Um, I don't like what they did with Penny here. I like the fact that they focused on Penny. What I don't like is that they kind of chickened out just to bait and switch. And, um, so I've been kind of going in many different directions because there's so much fucking stuff that goes on in those two volumes in Atlas, and a lot of it revolves around Penny. In volume eight, you have a lot of these situations where Penny is trying to sacrifice herself for the greater good. Uh, one of their early plans is to have Amity Tower climb above the sky and deliver the message that Salem exists, and we need all of the kingdoms of Remnant to bring help. Penny falls to uh, the earth and is basically burning to a crisp. You know, that, that seems like a good old death scene. Nope. She survives only to have a virus, and the virus is a thing, and then Ruby and whatever, and they're gonna save her life, and, you know, they go through all the trouble with the staff of creation and have her blueprints and everything and just make a human body. So Penny has a human body now with the power of the maiden and no computer virus. Only for an episode later to die at Cinder's hands. So... The reason I have a problem with this is they spent Volume 7 building up the fact that Winter was going to become the Winter Maiden, only to give it to Penny. Only to give it back to Winter. The reason that I think they did it, and that's why I'm going to do this as a positive and a negative, what I think they're, they were going for was they wanted Winter to come across as she has accepted it from Penny as a friend and accepted it as a gift rather than an obligation. But she'd already made overtures of the same idea. You didn't need to go that far. I get in Volume 7 where you understand the idea where it's foisted upon her as an obligation, but she's spending several episodes saying she wants the power and she has the will to use it. I think Winter's better off under the situation having obtained it this way. But I do think it's kind of odd that you spend these two or three episodes basically having outs for Penny's life if you're going to kill her anyway just to kill her at the end of the fucking season as a gotcha moment much like you did Pyrrha. It just feels like if you were going to kill her off, you could have done it once or twice. You gave Penny so many different outs. It's like kicking out at two, and then you just go ahead and knock her off regardless. You're only going to have as many times as you can to pull that kind of shit. Once at best. 
they tried two times. And then you just decide, oh, we're going to kill her anyway. I like the fact that Winter is the Winter Maiden, and they I get what they were going for. But not only do you kill off a very lo- beloved character, I think Penny was more popular than Pyrrha was, to be honest. But you pull that bait and switch twice just to fuck with us again. All for the sake of Cinder's bemusement and her one-sided urge that we know is not going to lead to anything because even if she has all of the power of the maidens, it's not going to amount for shit because Salem is stronger than she is and will always be stronger than she is. So again, you you throw this stuff and it doesn't quite work. The one thing it does do is it pisses Winter off and it gives her the power to fight Cinder off and she is able to lead the remaining forces into vacuo and that lasting sequence of her basically just screaming at the fucking camera in fucking anger because she has lost her sister and her best friend she is pissed off and i can't wait to see what winter does the lasting scene of the volume is ruby's crescent rose weapon on a deserted island. We don't know if it is the island of Vacuo, but we do know that it is a place. And because it exists, apparently, Team Ruby and Neo, who were the ones that fell off, probably are still alive. But again, I don't know. Again, do I like what they did at the end of Volume 8? Yes and no. I don't... I get where... You have to start killing people off to have the stakes rise up. And I don't know if you told the... I don't know if you told the end of Penny's story or not. They gave her a lot of screen time, so I guess they needed something to justify it. But I think they just pushed out when they could have just killed her off outright and made it more meaningful. Then try to make it more meaningful when they actually pulled off that death scene. Um, It's... The law of diminishing returns. When they did it with Pyrrha, they gave it one go. They didn't puss out. They just did it. So that leaves us with Volume 9. And where do I think the series goes from here? I don't really know because there's many different directions you can go. Not every character is going to survive this. And this could end up being one of those things where... It could be the super saccharine happy ending where everybody survives and the gods of light and dark are brought back together and Salem gets what she wants, but Ozma gets what he wants and they both come out looking peachy keen, you know, and then everybody who died gets brought back because they felt... It, that would be that would be kind of cheap. That's why I don't think that's going to happen. What I do think is going to happen is you still have Vacuo. So you got two or three volumes where Vacuo's at risk... And the relic of, I think, destruction, which is the remaining one, because there's relic of choice and relic of destruction. I believe relic of choice is the one in Beacon, which hasn't been found yet. They made a point in earlier volumes to mention that it's still there. Um, And I was worried that they didn't show Glinda Goodwitch. They actually showed Glinda in Beacon. So she's still alive, too. So they're going to go back to Beacon. So there is no doubt in my mind that there is 
some way you get back to Beacon for the final volume or the final two. So I think you've got four or five more volumes remaining of Ruby. Um, the biggest questions become who lives and who dies and how do they get there? Emerald has already switched sides. Hazel is dead. Arthur is dead. Tyrion, whatever, is still alive. But, of course, Salem and Cinder are still alive. So you have this situation is like, who's going to survive? I think Team Ruby are the ones that are going to survive. I don't really know if Winter is going to survive. I kind of want the Maidens to. But I don't think they're going to. What I think is going to end up happening is they haven't even told us who the Summer Maiden is. But I think it's going to be fairly obvious to me that Team Ruby in and of itself are going to become the Maidens of one way or another. If not, then they, along with the Maidens, you know, Winter, Raven, Cinder, and whomever the Summer Maiden turns out to be, fight against Salem and get the relics back and go to Beacon and save the world. That being said, I imagine that Penny isn't the last one to be sacrificed. If it's up to me, I think, as much as I like Winter, I think Winter is going to end up being cast aside. At the end of the day, I think Team Ruby are going to be the only survivors remaining, along with Ospin and Salem until the very end, and then they're going to be the Maidens, and they're going to offer the relics to whomever is going to be. They could do a whole host of different things. But they have made it a point in the last couple of seasons that they are just going solely for the relics. You have the stakes. If Salem gets them, the world is destroyed. And she she's gotten her wish, and her life is over. If Ruby gets her wish, and her message is sweeped across the world, and everybody comes together, the gods basically say, the world is spared, and we've got whatever. So the question then becomes, who is the last ones standing? I think if Penny's any indication, Rooster Teeth has made it pretty clear that people are going to die. And unfortunately, I don't think Nora, Jean, or Ren are going to survive long enough. I don't think Crow is going to survive either. So, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't even think Neo is going to survive. I don't think Cinder is going to survive. I think Team Ruby are going to be the only sole survivors remaining with Salem and Ozpin. And it's going to be a fucking mess when they get there. But that's going to be for another day. That's going to be for another whole five years at this point. But at the end of the day, I think Ruby has been a fantastic series. And it's nowhere near finishing. I think they've got the end goal in sight. Whether it ends up becoming what I think it's going to be, what I've said just now, I don't know. They could decide they just want the completely tragic ending and the world just dies. They could do the super, the super saccharine ending and everybody lives in harmony and everything just works out. I don't think they're going to be that stupid. But wherever they decide to go... I'm going to keep going with it because I've been a fan for a few years now. I've really liked going back through the series for a third time and, you know, seeing where it developed. And because I wasn't a fan when it started, I, got, I came into it late. I came into it when seasons, you know, six and seven were starting to become a thing. Um, 
but I've really enjoyed it. And I've really enjoyed that this American series is kind of taken as much inspiration from as much anime stuff as it can by being its own thing. And whether you like the comedic stuff for the first two seasons or what I would prefer, this really nuanced and layered uh, epic series in the last eight, last six with high stakes, high reward, and high loss, there's something for everybody. And I think it, it's, it's, it's a good show for anyone who is a fan of American cartoons. It's a good show to show anybody if they're a fan of video games or if they're a fan of anime i came into it because i was an anime fan and this was the closest thing that american cartoons got to anime other than stuff like avatar and whatnot but again rooster teeth has done its own service and it's been a big hit for them and i'm really grateful that they're going to keep going regardless of the pandemic or regardless of what voice actors have what happened to them and whatever they keep marching on because they have had a story that they want to finish and i will be a fan of it until it does and i hope i've done a little bit in these last 3 episodes to at least express that and hopefully get people interested if they haven't already been maybe i spoiled a few things maybe i haven't you know what you signed up for but that'll do it for Ruby. And that means, what do we do after this? Well, next week is going to be Dragon Quest VIII. Uh, I just finished a rewatch of Dragon Quest VIII, so I'm very familiar with it and have a lot of good talking points. The next episode for anime will feature Gankutsuo, the Count of Monte Cristo. A very, very good show with a very good design aesthetic. And then a video game near and dear to my heart but not nearly to the acclaim that something like a dragon quest or final fantasy though it should odin sphere uh i've been a fan of that game whether it was a ps2 release or it's fairly recent ps4 remaster and i will really relish talking at length about odin sphere but we have a good set of episodes probably for a good couple of months honestly um, I'm working my way, honestly, to a big um, podcast talking about the Miku franchise and the Vocaloid Project Diva games, the Project Mirai, Project Diva, Project Future Tone stuff, and Vocaloid in general. So I'm trying to get my knowledge base up on that while I can, while I still got a couple of months, because I'm going to release that on March 9th. So I've got episodes set until then. You know, I just got to record them. But I'm really looking forward to all of these. And again, I don't know how good these are going to do. I don't know how, you know, interesting they are or if people like them. And I think, judging by the numbers, I think the podcasts have done a little better than my playthroughs, which makes sense. Because I'm able to dig deep and talk at length as to why I like a thing. And all I can do is express my love or express my frustration about a franchise or about a show and hopefully this is something that continues for the long haul but that'll do it for me today and hopefully it is something that people enjoy and that'll be enough for me citizen strife signing off